You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thank you for tuning in to the show, however it is that you found it. I wouldn't go through my normal spiel, but I think I'm going to stop doing that because you know I don't even think that I'm on the Black Vault Radio Network anymore. In fact, I think I technically am, but I don't update the shows there, and I'm supposed to do it myself or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, so I don't even know if it's still going. But anyway, if it is, I'm still on there, but I don't think it is, so there we go. Anyway... Uh, so I got, got a few announcements. First of all, first I have a new YouTube account and it's super awesome because it's all full length videos. Finally got done doing all that stuff today. So it's up and ready to go. No more linking, you know, part one, part two, part three, part four of 10 or 15 minute videos. Now I can put the entire video there, whether it's an hour, two hours long, whatever, which is really good for you that you can actually embed the entire video or link to the entire video without having to, you know, link to all the parts. So that that account is my verse by verse YouTube, and I'll explain why in a minute, but it's basically youtube.com slash verse by verse BT, which stands for verse by verse Bible teaching, which is another website that I do. First by verse Bible teaching.com. So anyway, youtube.com slash first by verse BT is the new backup channel. And many of you know that my primary channel was shut down due to a false copyright claim. And it ended up being really good that I had a backup channel waiting with something like 6,000 subscribers at the time. So it really saved the day to have that. So of course, I need to go ahead and make a new backup channel. And what a better excuse to make a backup channel than to make a channel that has all my videos in full-length format. So it's a win-win situation as far as I'm concerned. I certainly would have never done this if I uh, hadn't lost the other channel. So again, more good coming out of a bad thing as far as that YouTube account getting shut down. More YouTube kind of talking really quick before we get into anything substantial because I know a lot of you have been asking if your accounts or you know how I got to upload videos longer than 15 minutes. And I, I explained this in a real quick video on my YouTube page, but I'll go ahead and explain it to you right right here too. Is that I don't think YouTube has announced it officially yet, or maybe they have on some something, but I haven't seen them uh, announce it yet. Basically, they are um, starting to roll out this new system where everybody, or not everybody, people that meet certain requirements are going to be able to upload videos up to 20 gigabytes in size and unlimited length. That's what I've heard anyway. Uh, And you may be eligible for it. And if you are eligible for it, you will find out by going into your YouTube account and hitting the upload button. And if you're eligible, when you hit the upload button, a little um, blue box will show up saying, congratulations, you have been approved to upload videos longer than 15 minutes or something like that. So, uh, what are the stipulations? First of all, you can't have any copyright strikes against you. you. YouTube operates on a three-strike system, and these are not the strikes that you might get for having like a song um, connected to one of your your accounts. That's a totally different thing, and it doesn't count against you. This is if somebody has actually made a copyright claim against you, and you get three of those chances. If you have even one of those, you won't be eligible for this thing. Another thing is that if you... Um, 
Uh, I don't think if you if you've not uploaded enough videos. Like I've checked some of my old accounts, and uh, I only had like two videos uploaded. Some of them they weren't eligible, even though there was no copyright claim against them. Also, I think you have to. Um, they have to be a certain amount of age. I don't think you could just go start one right now and expect it to be there. I think it has to be old enough, or maybe not. I don't know. But here's the important thing if anybody does find out that they have this ability. Whatever you do, don't delete any videos or don't make any of the videos that are currently on there private. Because um, if you're like me, I was going to like delete all those and start over. Oh, great, I got this new channel that's approved, so let's get rid of all that stuff and start fresh but it won't let you do that in fact it'll take away your privileges and you in order to get those privileges back you have to um, upload all the videos just as they were which actually I totally ruined my DVD tracked um, YouTube account because I deleted all the videos first and I don't have the originals for those so I ended up uh, losing all that stuff and losing also the privileges for that account so I really messed it up so whatever you do don't mess with the old videos if you do find that you have this ability. Also, um, if you're like me, I had a lot of YouTube accounts all over the place that I'd started, you know, over the years, the past two or three years for different reasons. So maybe your primary account doesn't have this ability, but maybe you set up an account for some reason for work or some crazy other reason for family or whatever. If, if you can remember what that, if you can find the video that you uploaded, you can find your username. And if you have your username, you probably have it connected to a email that you have access to, and you can find out what your password is through that thing. So that's how you upload videos longer than 15 minutes on YouTube, and at least right now, and some helpful tips. But I'm really excited about it because now that I have this new channel, which I'm going to be sort of picky with, um, the full-length channel, because I really want it to stay around for a while, so I'm not going to rock the boat too much with it. Uh, for example, I know that certain of my videos, uh, like Michael Tassarian is Wrong and the Greg Braden one, uh, kind of get attacked a little bit from from those guys, and they have in the past, so I'm going to uh, kind of keep them off that channel, but in the channel that I currently work with, I'm going to start uploading those on there because uh, the great thing is, is even if a copyright claim does come from one of those people, I will be able to challenge it because it will only be one copyright strike against me and I can go through the process to challenge them because they are uh, they are covered by fair use. There's no doubt in my mind. I've won in the past with Michael Tassarian as far as this goes, so I'm, I know he's still deleting them from YouTube, but I don't know. I, I think that I'm immune to it, I think, because I've successfully uh, gotten videos back from his false copyright claims in the past. So I think that gives me some immunity towards him. But uh, in any case, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to, to uh, uh, counterclaim anybody that does. So anyway, all that to say that I'm going to be a lot more aggressive with the old account than I was before, because I was trying to like not rock the boat with that one. But now that I have a stable one, I'm going to rock the boat. So, because it's necessary, because so many new people are coming to the uh, to that account because of the David Icke v video uh, primarily, which uh, has been doing pretty good. I'd still like to see it do better. It's got 22,000, almost 23,000 views at the moment. So that's obviously really you know really good. But I just really think that that video can do. A lot more, so I'm I'm still not satisfied. But nevertheless, there's a lot of new new people there that uh, are just now starting to figure out all this stuff and and sort of getting 
getting it figured out and doing a lot of research, so I want to try to provide them with the best possible information. So I want to get stuff like the Greg Braden debunked and the Michael Tassarian debunkumentary on there so people can start to figure this out. So also wanted to mention that a uh, new blog is up on the 2012deception.net site. This is a guest post from Chris Putnam. Chris does an excellent apologetics website called Logos Apologia. That's logosapologia.org, I believe. And uh, he's done an excellent article uh, that's called Ancient Astronaut Theory Meets 2012. And it's a, it's a look into a lot of different things, but, but uh, primarily about this History Channel um, series called Ancient Aliens and how it's sort of... Uh, what it's focusing in on. It's just a really well-written article. So check that out at the 2012deception.net. And in addition to that, I wanted to mention to anybody out there that uh, may have something to say about 2012 that knows sort of what we're, what we're talking about and about the knows the sort of flavor of the 2012 Deception site. If you want to contribute an article to that or guest post or whatever, please contact me. You can do so. Uh, by going to the 2012deception.net site and hitting the contact button, or you can contact me directly. Moving on, I wanted to hit a few other things here. First, about the iTunes U and the seminary stuff that I've been doing. People had been asking me about where I was going to as far as seminary and where they could get the links that I was talking about, so I'll mention that real quick. But just learning in general is something that I think is really important for all of us, continued learning. There's a good example of this, I think, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. This is when Paul's about to die. I mean, he's about to get executed by Nero. This letter is full of this sort of understanding that Paul has. But he says towards the end, he's talking, and he says he wants them to bring him his cloak that he left with this guy. And he also says to bring him books, but especially the parchments. Now, here, here he is about to die, but he also wants to be brought these parchments. And I think it's sort of indicative that learning is something that, uh, I guess, to put it put it one way, we can take with us. You know, we're going to retain our learning. And I think especially of the parchments, that is, of the word. And I think that what I really would like to say to a lot of people is that, you know, we're all learners for the most part. That's why we're here. We're, we're, we're investigators. We've we found out that, you know, originally that there was something wrong with the world, but we didn't know what it was. And we, we went down all these paths and we have found what is and what isn't deception for the most part. And we're learning all the time about that kind of stuff. And, you know, we will investigate, you know, the ingredients list of our, you know, whatever. But I think that ultimately what I hope the, the message that I want to get across to people is that at some point we need to begin to diligently learn about the Bible. Once we de determined that, yes, it's true. It is, it is true. It is something that nobody wants us to read. The real reality is that the New World Order is trying everything they can to keep us from reading it, to keep us from learning about it. And they have for thousands of years. It seems to be the one thing that is uh, crucially important. Um, and I think that at some point, I want people to realize that, okay, well, let's do it. And then the the freak out moment happens when you realize when you get just far enough into it to realize that this is much more interesting than you gave it credit for it's like a light bulb goes off and you're like oh my gosh i would have to spend several lifetimes to really soak in all the majesty and 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 uh, of it and not just the majesty but the application it's interesting people 
contact me all the time with questions about all kinds of different things. And a lot of them I've heard, but a lot of times I haven't heard them. And if I haven't heard them, I'll go look them up. And what's fascinating to me is that they their their answers are always in the Bible. It's like it anticipated everything. It's like no matter if I haven't even heard something before, it somehow or another the Bible figured it out beforehand. And realizing that started to make me be like, okay, well, this really becomes a matter of how well can I know this? I mean, how well can I navigate through it? How can I understand it better to help more people? And not just helping people. I mean, that's one application of it. But it also is explaining the world. It's explaining the nature of people. It's explaining the nature of reality. And not just that, but but the future of the the system, as it were, the fu- the future of evil and how best to uh, to battle against it. It really has everything that is needed, and all of those things are described not not partially, but in depth. And it it, it says so much that once you really start to get into it, it's like every sentence, every verse has you know, forgive the analogy, but encoded in it, um, not an allegorical encoding, but encoded in, in the, in the, what it's actually saying there is, uh, is more information about the issue or about some other issue. It's just got like depths and depths. I, I picture, you know, in the movie, the matrix, how I think it, one of the movies started out with it zooming in on this clock and every piece of the clock was more code and, I just look at the Bible like that, not in some esoteric code kind of way, but, you know, like in, in just to illustrate its depth. And so what I'm saying is that I hope that most of us start to realize that and, and, and start to dive into the study of the Bible and realize that for me, um, you know, I, I spent years listening to verse by verse teaching of different people that I would find and I mean, if you if you calculated all the hours that I spent listening to verse by verse sermons, it would probably equal like lifetimes worth of Sundays. I mean, I've probably been to if if you want to calculate it like that. But it, what's interesting about it is that only now I, I feel like I really understand a lot about the way the Bible is is uh, speaking and what it you know the consistent uses of symbols that it uses that really start to understand why and how those symbols are used. Just now, reading the Old Testament, for example, which is something I don't always recommend to new believers, I think that they should read the New Testament and really understand it first to really to really enjoy the Old Testament. But that's kind of where I'm at right now. I, I, I've got all that stuff, and I'm, I'm really digging into the Old Testament a lot more and realizing that it is um, that I... I'm really starting to understand it, and uh, it's just amazing what's in there and how applicable it is and how important it is and how it was. It really took a full understanding to get the most out of it, and I know, based on that, that if I could get more understanding of it, that it would even be even more useful to me. I mean, this is it, this is kind of where I'm at. So, anyway... Saying all that, one thing I wanted to mention about the study of the Bible is that it is very important, not just for uh, the Old Testament, where I think it's very, very important, but also for the New Testament, to research the research the book itself, like, let's say, Ezekiel, for example, 
to get the most out of an Ezekiel, you don't have to, like I just said, have years of listening to a verse-by-verse Bible study in order to make sense. You don't have to do that. But one thing I would uh, say that is very necessary is to read the situation that this particular prophet or that particular book, especially important in the prophets, read the situation that they were in and before you get going on just opening up and expecting to understand it because you're, you're basically jumping into a situation that you know nothing about and expecting to get something out of it. And Ezekiel is a great example of that because it's it's not, well, let me just explain a sort of thumbnail of what Ezekiel's situation was. It was after, well, Babylon, as many of you may or may not know, Babylon eventually took over Jerusalem and took them all into captivity. This is where Daniel, the prophet, wrote most of his or all of his uh, you know, uh, prophecies that were written from Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and all that stuff, the, you know, the fiery furnace all happened in Babylon. At that time, there wasn't anything going on in Jerusalem because it had been conquered by Babylon. Now, when I, Ezekiel wrote, it was sort of an interesting time. It was, it was after Babylon had conquered uh, a lot of the surrounding area. They were just now becoming to, becoming really prominent again. They had been prominent, but then they had been defeated and now they're getting pr- more prominent again. And they had defeated a lot of the surrounding area, but they hadn't yet defeated Jerusalem. And the mindset in Jerusalem was really that it was not going to happen. They were not repenting from their sin. They were they were still doing the same things, again, like I've mentioned many times, passing their kids through the fire to Molech, uh, many different worships of the ancient gods and things like that. They were still doing all that stuff, still trusting in their walled cities, still trusting in their gods. And... That's the situation that uh, Ezekiel was in. It was after Daniel had already been taken to Babylon. So the first wave had been taken, but Jerusalem had not been taken. So that really comes into play a lot because you're you're reading this and you're like, okay, so have they been taken or haven't they been taken? It seems like they have, but they haven't. And, you know, what's the story with all this other stuff? And so it, that kind of stuff is really important. A good study Bible, most good study Bibles will have intros to books and stuff like that. I like... MacArthur's study Bible is a, does a really good study Bible. I like him for the most part. Um, I one thing I've found out is that there's no there's no theologian I agree with 100 percent of the time, especially in issues about eschatology or whatever. Um, let me mention real quickly, as I was going to do, the seminary stuff that I've been going to. One of them has been well. There's three of them essentially, and I the reason it's these three is not because I huge affi- affinity towards them. Other rather than there's just the ones I knew about that I more or less trusted. One of them was Calvary Bible, uh, Calvary Chapel Bible College, which is actually not on iTunes U, but I found them through their website. It's sort of a, I wouldn't say backdoor to it, but because all of it's for free, but it's just a link to their archives where they have all this stuff posted. But Another one that I've been going to that I think is a really great school, they have top-notch professors there, is Reformed Theological Seminary, and I really like them a lot. There's some issues that are basically useless to me because I don't agree with all their theology 100%, but one thing I found out is that I'm not going to ever really agree with everybody's theology, especially in these seminary situations, so you take what you can get. Um, Certainly don't agree with a lot of the issues of eschatology there and matters of the spirit tend to uh, fall short of what I would think. But anyway, it is useful in a lot of different ways, and it's been teaching me a whole lot of stuff about um, 
about the Bible. Next is Dallas Theological Seminary. Again, really, really good professors, really good school. Don't agree with them 100% on a lot of issues, including eschatology or whatever. But I really, really appreciate their, what do they call it, their chapel stuff. Some It seems like all of these groups have what's called chapel, which is basically these people that are um, coming to preach to the preachers. And I guess I don't know if it's on a weekly or monthly basis or whatever, but they're pretty cool too. But they're not exactly lectures or, or classes or whatever. So I will link to those three. If anybody has any other seminaries that they would recommend, especially if they're on iTunes U, that would be awesome. But I don't know. I just don't know that many. I don't know what are good, what's good, or what's not. So, anyways, oh, I just remembered one that I do know that is good, Veritas, which uh, I should check out after this. But anyway. So one other thing, this is sort of a shot in the dark. I have no idea if I even want to do this, but I think I do. To be ordained, I know it's pretty much a situation where a pastor is like, oh, it's okay, you're, orda- you're ordained, I give you a certificate or whatever. Um, so if anybody out there is a pastor and they wouldn't mind ordaining me, I don't even know what the legal thing is. I don't know if in Tennessee you have to have some sort of whatever stamp from the state or whatever, but if... If it's that easy as far as getting a certificate, if anybody's a pastor out there, I would really appreciate an ordination. I don't even know uh, what good it would do me, but I feel like it would be a good thing to have. And the reason I'm asking you here on the show is because if you've been listening to this, um, you know, you would probably know me pretty good and whatever, know, and feel comfortable with that. But anyway, sort of shot in the dark there. On to something that I'm going to start, a project that I'm going to start doing pretty soon, I think. Yeah, I just started research on it today, which is issue about anti-Semitism and the Jewish question in general. And I, th- I really want to hit on this question about this idea that the Jews today aren't the real Jews. They're Turkish converts. It's called the Khazar theory or Khazar myth. And it really goes back to a guy named Arthur Kohlsler in a book called The 13th Tribe. And it is so predominant, you wouldn't even believe unless you you have traveled in the same sort of conspiracy circles I have, but everybody uses it. I mean, everybody uses it. I could just name every single person in the entire truth movement, and they all talk about Arthur Kohlsler in The 13th Tribe, even if they don't mention him by name. They talk about how these Jews came from Turkey and they they became what we know today as the Jews and they've got all kinds of different theories about it. But a lot of them differ. Just like whenever you, something is definitely untrue, you know that it is because of the different sort of versions that everybody has. Like 2012 is a perfect example of that. Is that you know everybody has sort of their flavor of what's going to happen in 2012 and it all maybe it has something to do with the photon belt. Maybe it has something to do with the planets becoming in line and you know everybody has like a completely different but yet equally sure version of how it's all going to go out and go down and this is no different this idea that uh, i'm going to give you a really hopefully quick thumbnail of it and discuss it real quick the idea is that there were uh, these turkish converts the royal family of something known as kazaria very, very little is known of Khazaria. There's no writings from uh, the Khazarian Empire. There's a pretty good 
idea that it did exist. There's some there's some evidence to that degree to a point that's not really questionable. Even to probably say that the royal family did convert to Judaism, although there is not all that much evidence for that either. But it's pretty well assumed that they did. And the idea is that this this event that they migrated then from Turkey to Germany, um, there the the word Ashkenazi Jew is essentially trans, you could translate it as meaning German Jew. In the Middle Ages, there was a time when all all the Jews after seventy A.D. you know the Rome conquers Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed, Jews sort of disperse to all kinds of areas. They they eventually through you know the Islamic Golden Age and all this stuff they when trade is increased and they have more ways to get places they, they a lot of them do end up showing up in Germany and this is where all their the good Jewish schools and stuff were and throughout the Middle Ages this is kind of what was known as Ashkenazi Jew basically German Jew now what the theory is is that the Ashkenazi Jews were derived from uh, this this migration. Okay, so first we're assuming there's a migration from Khazaria to Germany, to the Khazaria Empire, which little is known about. Uh, certainly not a migration. And then it's an assumption that the because the um, because the uh, uh, royal family converted to Judaism, everybody converted to Judaism in the whole country, and then they moved to uh, Germany. Now there's lots and lots of problems with this, which I'll talk about, but. The main the main issue is that you have well there's lots of main issues. First is that um, you can actually trace how everybody came to Germany from all the different parts of the world, um, and you can find out how that all happened. You can trace that more or less for why Germany became a center for Judaism. You can't, and there is no evidence for how you know, for this supposed migration from Turkey to uh, Germany. The other issue is the DNA evidence. There has been DNA evidence that shows that Ashkenazi Jews are no different genetically than, um, you know, Jews from other areas that are widely considered to be, you know, Jews. It's interesting, actually, that um, the original idea, supposedly, from this Arthur Kohlsler was to show that these... Jews from the Ashkenazi Jews were not derived from uh, biblical uh, Jews; that they were not biblical Jews, and therefore shouldn't be hated. <laughs> uh, so he was trying to prevent anti-Semitism, so they say. But w- there's a lot of interesting things about him, which I could get into in a minute. But but basically, he was trying to keep a- anti-Semitism, f- you know, trying to prevent anti-Semitism, but. In doing so, he has made this 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 theory be basically the thing that allows anti-Semitism to exist in people like David Icke's viewpoint. And it's so funny to hear Tassarian or Icke talk about the the Jews because they they hate Jews so much, but they always do it with this little snake fork tongue thing where they're all like, "Oh no no, not the real Jews, just these fake you know Illuminati Jews. That's the ones I hate." so much i can't stand them so much and it's just and they always make the point of like you know they have some slick way or sort of you know saying that they're the nice guys you know we're just hating all the right people and not the not the wrong people we love the right people hate the wrong people um but anyway so there's lots and lots and lots of problems with this theory besides this Uh, the genetic stuff at the very least shows 
uh, because there's, you know, both sides are taking the genetic evidence. But the interesting thing about it, if you take even the hardcore argument from the other side about the genetic evidence, the, and it's, t- trust me, really not even a good argument, but even if you gave them the whole argument, you could only suggest that, uh, I think it's like 12% of the Ashkenazi Jews could have come from Turkey at best. And I'm talking about a real big at best. At the at best, the Ashkenazi Jews were, 12% of them were uh, Turkish. And that is, again, a very big gimme. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's, that's part of it. The issue is that this kind of situation, as I've alluded to, is sort of a way to get well-meaning Christians to hate Jews. I mean, that's just what it does. It, it, it usually takes the form of different sort of things. It usually starts out sometimes with the serpent seed theory that I've joked about a lot. And I've talked about this a few times on the show as well. But it does get Christians to be like, oh, you mean that these people are sort of like fake Jews and they're not really Jews and it's okay to hate them because they're the Illuminati and, and, and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should really hate them. I mean, I mean, just hate, hate, hate them. And, and the, but the interesting thing is there's no way to tell who is and who isn't the real and fake Jews. Even if you totally believed Arthur Kohler in the 13th tribe and you, it was just something you just, just believed, believed, believed. And you knew every, fine detail of the entire theory, you would never, ever, ever, ever be able to tell with any of the information there who was and who wasn't the fake Jews, because um, there is no clear depiction of these sort of like vague ideas of hooked noses and things. Literally, that's that's about as deep as it gets as far as the connection connection goes. It's like the, 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 the Jews in Turkey had hooked noses, or the people in Turkey had hooked noses, and Jews have hooked noses. Case closed, problem solved. And I mean, it's like that. But nevertheless, um, there's this is the reason why I want to do the the video on this is because there's a ton of really good ways to show this is totally wrong. The quotes from the scholars about this would just make you cry. I mean, it's it's so well debunked, scholarly, scholarly, scholastically, <laughs> um, that it's not even funny. But anyway, also Arthur Coulter himself died in a double suicide with his wife, which is kind of fishy there. But even more fishy is they gave their million-dollar-plus estate to a university, Edinburgh, I believe, Edinburgh or whatever, Edinburgh University, to advance the science of the paranormal. The He was really interested in paranormal stuff at the end of his life and contacting whatever, you know, not necessarily contacting spirits, just stuff like... Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, like telekinesis and levitating and just, just all kinds of paranormal research. So that's what he gave him and his wife, who died in a double suicide, which is kind of fishy, um, gave all their money to that. But that's And his personal life is a mess, and I won't go into that and the debunk thing, but it, it is. So anyway, m- lots of different things to talk about that because I think it's important and this is why. And this is where the question of, well, what about the Rothschilds and stuff like that? Are you saying, Chris, that the Rothschilds are not, you know, in charge of all this stuff and, and all this kind of stuff? And let me say right out the outset, too, about the support of Israel and everything like that. First things first, I think we should distinguish really quickly the difference between blessing a country and uh, and, and praying for them. Bless is, comes from the word barak, means to pray for, to, to bless. The difference between blessing a people, a nation of Israel, and supporting everything their government does. I mean, just 
as I mean, you could have a, quite a easy biblical debate saying that, uh, well, 90% of the time, the government of Israel in the Bible was totally corrupt and worshiping Baal. And if you did what the government said to do in Israel 90% of the time, you were directly disobeying God. So suggesting that we have to support, support every decision the government makes, especially knowing how fickle governments are, using our own government as an example, that, that that's probably a bad idea. But don't misunderstand me. The thing that you have to understand is that this world really, 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 really hates Jews. And the BBC and the and CNN and, yes, even Fox News, as, as much as they try to pretend that they're not, and the Vatican and, and the, the UN and all these, these organizations really fuel this idea of um, to, to hate Jews, they're the problem with the world and everything else, they're the aggressors and all this stuff, and they lie to a huge degree. Really, please, if anybody doesn't believe me, please go check out a video called Pallywood, like Hollywood, except P-A-L-L-Y-W-O-O-D. Now, that'll get you started. That'll get you started. Jot down what else I'm going to say here. Not just Pallywood. Well, I'll try to put, remember to put this in the show notes, although I haven't been doing a very good job of that. Um, is Another thing to check out is, a, is Honest Reporting. I think they have something on YouTube as well. But uh, first, Pallywood. That'll get you thinking, okay, wait a second. Is is what I've been told by David Icke and et cetera maybe not right? Is maybe just because a Rothschild owns the a news agency, what's a Rothschild doing putting out very, very anti-Jewish stuff? I thought David Icke told me that they were all Jews and this is all pro-Jew. Um, well, why? You have to answer these these hard questions, I think. And, and the thing that you have to also realize when digging into this is that it, this is probably one of the most saturated topics to do with uh, misinformation. It makes my head hurt to really look into this. That's why this new project is going to be mm, a little difficult because it's not just going to be based on this. It's going to try to really talk about some of the things I'm talking about here. And it's frustrating because there's so much to know. Um, if you look at Revelation 12, you'll see that Satan hates Jews slightly more than he hates Christians. And that's a pretty interesting development because he hates Christians a whole lot. And in fact, if it's not for a direct intervention of God at when Satan finally hits earth, first order of business is to go destroy um, the, the Jews. He, a direct intervention from God really requires is required to protect them. And as soon as he realizes there's nothing he can do, then he starts to persecute the Christians. The reason, partially, is because he thinks that if he can destroy every single Jew on the face of the earth, then he can prevent the return of Christ. It's a part of prophecy, a little sort of loophole he thinks he has, that if he can de de destroy every Jew, he can pre prevent them from petitioning the Messiah's return and therefore save his own skin. It's his last chance. You can't blame him for trying. And that's what happened with the, with the Hitler situation. They were really trying to destroy all the Jews. Now, as I mentioned before, Germany was a place where all the Jews were sort of collected. It was the best option if you were going to try to do this. It was going to be able to kill off the most at any particular time. Now, when talking about the Rothschilds and similar situations like that, you have to realize that behind that mask is not Judaism, it's Satanism. I mean, I think that you can just do a little bit of research and find out that the Rothschild has more connection to Satanism than it ever had to Judaism, only in name. And you'll find the same thing with the Vatican is a great example. Father Malachi Martin, advisor to two popes. Also people like Sfali, who I quote a lot, of, but uh, both of them report high-level satanic rituals going on at uh, at the Vatican. And if any of that holds any amount of weight, then I think what I'm trying to illustrate here is that, that they're wearing masks. If Satan really does hate Jews and Christians more than anybody else in the world, 
then he's doing his evil stuff. He's got to, you know, acquire um, stuff for the New World Order. He has to acquire TV stations. He has to acquire, you know, stuff, land grabs with the Crusades and stuff. He has to acquire all this stuff to build the system. He's just doing this obviously evil stuff with the masks of his enemy on. I mean, come on, guys. We know about um, false flag terrorism. This is basic false flag stuff. You do... Your evil stuff with the mask of your enemy on, thereby creating anger and hatred for your enemy. It's like the perfect crime, right? So that's what's happening. The, the Rothschilds are no more Jews than I am, or or anybody that's you know not a blood Jew. They are just uh, it depend you know it depends on who who they're working for is basically who they um, bow their knee to at the end of the day, and in their case, it's Satan. But basically what happened with the formation of the of Israel, as far as I understand it, and I've got a lot more to learn about this, but one person I would encourage you to check out is a guy named Barry Chamish. I've interviewed him before, but his books and things like that are really a big help in understanding this. He's a guy that moved out of Israel. He's a, he's a secular Jew, and he moved out because he was convinced that this group of non-Jews, pretending to be Jews, he calls them Sabbateans, um, uh, that they created Israel for the purpose of getting all these Jews to come back to it and then to destroy it. That's what he is absolutely convinced after all his research. He's the guy that wrote the book, Who Murdered Yitzhak Rabin, essentially uh, pointing the finger at the current president, Shimon Peres, uh, as actually pulling the, the final fatal shot, which happened later in the hospital, but long story. Um, so he... He's a conspiracy theorist, you might say, but at the same time, I think he does really excellent research and he's a really great resource uh, for this information. But what I'm trying to say is that his view of this is that they're trying to wipe um, Jewish people off the face of the earth. And that was part of the reason for the formation of Israel. He believes that they're surrounded by rockets for the purpose of destroying Israel. He's, he's convinced of it. That's why he lives here. Whether or not he's totally right, I think it's an interesting theory. And I think that if you look at the German situation, and that's essentially what tried what was happen, happening there, they picked the one place the Jews had gathered and then started a pretty meticulous genocide. And after that is basically the formation of Israel to possibly do it again when it's when they've all returned to the land or whatever. I, here's the here's the X factor though, as far as biblical studies go, I don't think that they have really calculated what they're up against. I think that the Lord himself will prevent that from happening. I think that that may be a big part of how this all plays out. I'm not 100% sure how it's all going to function or whatever, but I don't think that they're being brought in the land. Uh, I think the principle is this, that what Satan uses for evil, God will use for good. Satan may totally be convinced he's bringing them back um, in order to to do this, uh, this bad stuff, but, but God is just using him to uh, ultimately do his will, which is to, even though they're going to try to kill them, to protect them. Now, this sort of a wild theory there, but I just want you to chew on it, check my facts out, see if I'm right about that, uh, and, and, and see how this version of reality sits with you, because I don't think that the other one is tenable. I think it's got too many holes in it, and I think it it's obviously something that I never feel comfortable walking lockstep with the Vatican and the BBC and Fox News and CNN and and Al Jazeera and everybody else in the whole media world, if I start to be like, you know, me and them have the exact same view of Israel, I think something might be wrong here. 
so that should hopefully get you. It's the exact same thing with the alien astronaut theory that somebody was mentioned mentioning to me recently in, a, in an email that that was one of the things that really started to get to him. It was like, you know, I, I'm being told that this is like a renegade thing that I believe about this alien astronaut theory. But how come the History Channel and and everybody keeps shoving this down my throat with all these movies and everything else? I'm not sure that I can comfortably say that I'm a renegade for believing this if I'm being in lockstep with all this uh, establishment sort of propaganda. So, again, I want you to really, really chew on the fact that this is how it happened in the past. Hitler used propaganda to essentially say that the Jews had created the Bolshevik Revolution and that they were in charge of all the universities, and he circulated the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion as a conspiracy theory. Um, you can go look at my video, the new video, on the, uh, it's not a new video, it's an older video, but just the, proto- the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion debunked to see that it was essentially, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, Jules, uh, whatever, uh, it was a forgery. It was all the Jewish characteristics were added to it. It was originally used as uh, French si- satire for Napoleon, but the the when they they sort of Jewicized it by adding terms like "we Jews" and those kind of things later on when they circulated it underground in Germany, which caused people like you and me, these these investigators of reality and wanting to try to figure out the truth. That's what we would be talking about back in the day. We'd be like, "Hey," because if you've ever read Learn Learn Elders Design, it's a excellent piece about how to control the world and and it's it's brilliant to say the least so you would read that and be like oh my gosh the jews are trying to control the world and although hitler never mentioned it in mein kampf he did mention that the jews were trying to control the world and they were you know uh you know had taken over the universities and if it wasn't for them doing something about it blah 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 so well he didn't quite say that that way in mein kampf but you get the picture so okay rant off i'm just going to quit right there and if you have any questions about it, you can email me, Chris, no, no, what's my email? Nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com. And I want to talk about the last thing. It's actually going back to one of the earlier things that I was talking about, but I forgot to mention it. And it is the uh, new Bible version that I really think is really awesome. One of the reasons is because it just uh, reads really well and it has copious notes about translation stuff. It's the new King James version of the Bible. Now, I have been like you, most of the people out there have been like, oh my gosh, the New King James Version, that's that's totally just like the other, uh, like the NIV, etc. But one of the reasons I thought that was because of a article by this website called Jesus is Savior, which I tend to agree with maybe 40% of the time. And other, other the other 60% of the time, I'm just like, oh, gosh, you guys really, really uh, suck. So, um Anyway, so let's talk about the New King James Version of the Bible. First of all, it is based on Texas Receptus, which is what I believe to be a uh, superior manuscript tradition. And it is, of all the Bible translations, the most copiously annotated, or the footnotes of it, have more translation-specific information than any other Bible. They really go to great lengths to make sure everything about the translations are footnoted. And none of the other translations do that to to anywhere near that degree. Now, I have in the past uh, talked about or or shunned away from the New King James Version because I had read on on, uh, this this, uh, site, JesusIsSavior.com or Jesus-Is-Savior.com, this article, the New King James Version, A Deadly Translation. 
And I saw this and I was like, oh my gosh, look how bad this is. This is just as bad as the NIV or whatever. Now, there, the thing about that really got me of all the things of the NIV stuff is that they would leave out the word like repent when it was really necessary. There was a lot of omissions of things like that that I felt were very doctrinal and didn't have any good basis except for the Westcott and Hort, Hort manuscript, the Alexandrian text, was not uh, just just omitted that. Now, I have a lot of problems with the Alexandrian, Alexandrian text, although there's a lot of conspiracy theory about the Alexandrian text, which I don't agree with. There is also a lot of stuff that I do agree with. Basically, Alexandria was sort of this liberal kind of area in Egypt. The text that was copied from was known to be a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. It didn't, it was evident that they didn't have original stuff to base it off of. It is older and that's why all the seminaries are, you know, have gotten enthralled with the idea is because it is an older text. The issue though is that it did, every, everybody seems to understand, it did fall out of favor. It was not widely circulated anymore. And I would suggest that probably one of the reasons it wasn't widely circulated was because it was known to be a copy of a copy of a copy and, and an inferior manuscript. Nevertheless, there's a lot of problems that I don't seem to agree with or, or I can't reconcile. And I, for that reason, I don't like a lot of the translations like the NIV. Uh, I know I've said that I really like the New American Standard and stuff like that. And I, I do, as I mentioned, because the New American Standard, for instance, puts a lot of the stuff that's omitted in brackets. So it's, it's readable in the, in the average reading of it. But I, I did always shy away from the New King, King James Version because I was told here by this website that it was, it was just an evil translation just like all the others. Now, I actually looked at this because I was having so much fun reading the King James Version. I really liked the way it uh, introduced the sections and I liked the notations and everything. Thing. And um, I found out that, number one, it is based on the Textus Receptus. It follows the same guidelines that Textus Receptus did in regards to the New, Transla uh, the New Testament and stuff like that. It's, it's, it appears to have tried to stay very true to that. The things that Jesus is, is Savior, the website, mentions, one that really got me was this one. And at point five, they say, there are 22 omissions of hell, 23 omissions of blood, 44 omissions of repent, 50 omissions of heaven, 51 omissions of God, and 66 omissions of Lord. The term devils and damnation and Jehovah and New Testament are completely omit omitted. Now, I was like, okay, well, if these omissions are, because this website gives absolutely no context for that. It just says, it went and omitted repent and i read that because i had read and seen the westcott and hort greek translation actually omit repent in a way that was like oh my gosh they uh they really shouldn't have done that. that that's really important and it has a lot to do with doctrine and everything so when i saw this 44 omissions of repent well you can count me out of new king james version i'm i'm out of here so i started looking up some of these things and seeing if it was like the uh like the uh uh, Westcott and Hort translations, because as I said, I really liked it. I, and and I found out that these omissions of repent are explained in another place where it talks about, uh, it tries to make this case, because the places that it, it changes the word repent is in in when it's talking about God repenting. Um, now, so the, the website that's trying to say this is a terrible, terrible thing is saying that um, it's sort of building up the straw man. It says, some people say that repent is about turning for your sins, but it can't be that because God repents. And it cites these examples of how the King James Version changes the word repent for these instances when God repents for doing something. 
like he but here's the issue that the King James version changes these words for repent in regard to God to better f- reflect the literal translation of it which is obviously what it's meant the the word repent comes from a Greek word metanoia and um that's a compound word meta meaning change and noia meaning mind so sometimes they'll translate it as God changed his mind or uh, some some version of that to reflect what's obviously happening. Certainly, it, the problem there is not with the trans, translators or translating it badly. In fact, they're translating it more literally. Um, but it's it's with understanding your personal definition of repent. What does it mean to you? Because it clearly can't mean God turned from his sin because God doesn't have any sin. There is no sin to turn from. So there's an issue of definition there. So when you say an omission of repent... Um, and instead they changed it to God changed his mind, the literal definition of it, uh, then that's that. Now, it does keep repent. It doesn't change repent uh, consistently when it's mentioned in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it leaves it, you know, um, repent and leave the Gospels the same and all that stuff. So that 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 really got me. This idea also of devils, I was like, because I knew in the Westcott uh, and Hort version that they actually had a lot of issues where they would, um, sort of change issues of spiritual warfare, kind of taking a not very realistic view of it. So when I saw this devils, I was like, oh, it admitted devils. How did it do that? Um, and it actually changes the word devils to demons. I mean, this this Jesus of Savior thing is really, really disingenuous in this article. It, I would, and, and it's actually a more literal translation than devils. And it's saying here, how could you completely omit the word devils? It doesn't say it changed the word devils to demons. Um, it didn't omit it. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you look at it like that, it actually made it more, um, a better translation, which was what it set out to do. And I think a lot of the other things that are said here in this particular article are just that same thing. I mean, I think that for the most part, nine out of ten of these are just examples of a better translation. Like number nine says, the the King James tells us to reject a heretic. Heretic after the second admonition in Titus 3.10. The New King James Version tells us to reject a divisive man. How nice. The Alexandrians and the Ecumenicals have a justification for rejecting anyone they wish to label as a divisive man. Well, well okay. I mean, it... Here's the issue. If, is it better to say that the word is a heretic? Does everybody know what a heretic means? Or should you take the Greek word, which is uh, essentially a transliteration of this word. Heretic is from the Greek, which says, like, sounds like heretikos or something like that. And it just and it means a divisive man. They gave you the, the literal uh, definition of it. And here the site's like, oh, New King James is going to change the word heretic to divisive man. Just trying to, to appease the pagans, are we? I mean, it's it's ridiculous if you actually look at some of this stuff. Um, now, I mean, one of the things it says I, I tend to agree with here is this uh, the symbol that it uses. In the early New King James Version, it uses the symbol of, uh, of the Trinity. Now, the Obviously, this gets this wrong. It says it's part of this, what does it call it, uh, Egyptian mysteries, which is an absolutely, totally untrue. I mean, the earliest use of this symbol was in runestones, 400 A.D. in Ireland. I mean, it's not even close to being an Egyptian thing. So, obviously, bad research going on there. But the issue is is that it was used uh, by, like, St. Patrick and stuff like that to refer to the Trinity. It's widely known to mean the Trinity, three being one, three persons or three things being one. And so it was a natural idea, again, sort of uh, as early Irish believers 
did use a symbol to reflect the Trinity. The fact that uh, later Irish believers and and other people, modern pagans, have used it, has have added a circle to it, and then used it as a pagan symbol, whatever. I mean, they don't use a symbol anymore, as far as I know. Even if they did, um, obviously their intentions were good. The for for that to be like out of the gates, this is the number one reason. It's obviously a, it's certainly not a six 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 symbol as it's put here in the uh, in in the. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior website again. It just drives me up the wall. If if I can get an amen for the Jesus is the Savior website driving you up the wall, give me a, give me a shout out in the comment section of the uh, of the uh, show here. And anyway, all uh, all I'm doing here, I'm not going to defend this version. I'm not saying it's the perfectest version in the world, but it is my favorite version now. I mean, I'm going to go officially say it. I think that the New King James version is my official ver- version. Uh, as far as the one I read and the one I, uh, it really helps me to understand it better. The you'll see the divisions in the chapters really help me sort of parse what I'm reading. As well as I mentioned, the footnotes and everything are very copious, more than any other translation. And I feel like I really am understanding it. It takes a lot of the, uh, the it updates the language from uh, sometimes hard to understand or hard to read, and makes it easy. So I I gotta say. I really like it, and I wanted to mention that in case anybody, as a lot of people do ask me from time to time, which Bible version I like, et cetera, et cetera. So this has been a sort of ranting show. Thanks for staying with me if you did. If you have any questions about anything, let me know. I want to really quickly recap some of the things that I mentioned. First of all, the new YouTube account. Full-length videos going on. The the name of that account, again, is Verse by Verse BT. stands for Verse by Verse Bible Teaching. YouTube.com slash Verse by verse BT, you'll find full-length videos to all my videos. I've also linked them uh, in the regular website in the video section are now linked to that one, so you can watch them all in full length. Also, the, the Michael Tessarian is Wrong 2009 just got re-uploaded to the regular backup account. Also, the 2012 blog thing, if you want to uh, submit a story to the 2012 blog website, send me an email. Wanting, requesting to do that. Also check out the new blog post there from Chris Putnam from uh, logosapologia.org, which is really great. And then secondly, or thirdly or fourthly, whatever, uh, if anybody knows anything about getting ordained, if you're a pastor or preacher or whatever, somebody that's ordained and knows how or is willing to or ordinate me, uh, I would appreciate if you gave me a, a shout and maybe some ideas. And you can do that at Nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com. Let's see. And also, Pallywood. Check out that movie, P A L L Y W O D. Pallywood, also honest reporting, um, has a YouTube page and a website for more on Pallywood type stuff. End of the month, I'm about to send out my new lo- newsletter. So if you're not signed up to that, please do so before the uh, first of the month. You can do it at um, NowhereToRunRadio.com or ConspiracyClose.com slash run, which is exactly the same thing, and go to the right side of the screen there and put your email in there, and I will send you an update every month about what's going on, kind of the radio interviews and stuff I've been doing and all that kind of stuff. So hope to see you there, and we'll talk to you all later. Bye. Yeah.